Morning, Christ Church. I came across an article in the New York Times recently called How Loneliness is Damaging Our Health. And it's an article, it's reflecting on the past two years of uh, the lockdown in New York City, um, a city where a million people live alone, a city of nine million and a million already live alone. And uh, the story, the article begins with this vignette of a young woman. Uh, she is a filmmaker and documentary maker, and she said she most acutely felt the loneliness around five o'clock each day. When she was accustomed to going out uh, to dinner with her friends and kind of hopping around the city a little bit, around five o'clock she'd place the order to some uh, food place and would get the Uber delivery and then watch Netflix until bedtime, just kind of becoming aware of the loneliness here. The, her life had shrunk uh, in these moments. And the article goes on and says, this loneliness, of course, was not really a result of the lockdown, but it was really a trend already happening. And it cites the U.S. Surgeon General who cautioned before the pandemic of an epidemic of loneliness. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. And the Surgeon General said this, driven by the accelerated pace of life and the spread of technology into all of our social interactions with this acceleration, he said efficiency and convenience have edged out the time-consuming messiness of real relationships, the work that it takes to be in community with one another. There's a book I read uh, pretty regularly, probably every other year or so. I find myself, not intentionally, just kind of falling back to this book. It's a short one that many of you have probably read called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And it's a fictional book. It takes place uh, between heaven and hell. And it imagines what would it be like for those in hell to get a vacation to heaven, just on the outskirts of heaven. And it's so interesting because as people visit and vacation, they actually take a travel bus up into heaven, most of them don't end up staying, that there's reasons that they would prefer uh, to be in hell. And you might be wondering, how could that possibly be? Well, you read the book, it starts to make a little bit more sense, and it's one of the reasons I, I revisit this book so much because I think it speaks to what, it, what sin actually does in our hearts. But what I find so fascinating is the picture of hell. At one point, they're trying to describe what it's like, and it says it's, it's a great gray city. Just call it the gray city. And it's always misting and raining, never sunny, never shining uh, any sort of light. And um, there's this sprawling city, but no one lives close to one another. And what happens is whenever two neighbors get into some sort of an argument, uh, they simply move to the next street over. All you have to do is think about a house, and a new one apparates, a new one comes up. And so you just keep on moving houses and houses and streets over. So there's this sprawling city, and one of the characters asks, was there anyone interesting I could go and visit, like a Nero or a Napoleon or someone? And they're, the, the character's answer says, by this point, Nero is millions of miles away. We know what house is his. I can show you it through a telescope. But Everyone is so far isolated. Everyone has removed themselves from one another. The interesting thing in this fiction is that hell is described as a self-imposed loneliness, a self-imposed isolation, a removal from all other forms of human connection and connectivity. Humans crave connection. We are made by the triune God, made in his image for relationship with him and with others. So today, as we continue our series on the Psalms, we're looking at Psalm 133 and 134, two of the smallest Psalms in all of the Psalter. And yet they point to how authentic Christian community is the, loneliness, is the antidote to loneliness and despair. Authentic Christian community is the antidote 
to loneliness and despair that our world is desperately craving at this time. So we're going to look. Here's the outline. If you're taking notes or thinking through how today is going to flow, we're going to look at the blessing of community, the challenges of community, and then how do we get authentic Christian community, the blessings of community, the challenge, and then how do we get it? How do we get this Christian community? So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Psalm 133, and we'll walk through this short psalm. It begins this way. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. By the way, I'm reading from the New International Version. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And the the psalm begins, isn't it marvelous and amazing when God's people live in unity with one another in community? These psalms, Psalms 133 and 134, they're part of a collection within the Psalter uh, called the Psalms of Ascent. They, if, you, if you look in the Psalms, you'll probably see a little title above them. The Psalms of Ascent, they go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and there are all these little short psalms um, kind of on the way, traveling along up to worship in Jerusalem, songs that you could sing in community. And last week, we focused on who is able to go into the presence of the Lord, you know, as you're going up to, to the mountain, and we realize it's only Jesus himself, but then he invites us in. Today, we're looking at the community as they travel up into the presence of God. And the psalm gives us two images, two metaphors for what it's like going up into his presence. The first image, it's like precious oil. This is what, when brothers live together in unity, when the God's people live together in unity, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down onto Aaron's robe, down on the collar of his robe. I don't know if um, everyone in here knows Jason Morris. You might have seen him before, but I think he holds the title for the largest beard in our church. He's got one of those Old Testament um, patriarchal beards that just kind of stretch down to your chest. And so I kind of imagine in this moment just oil dousing all the way through the beard and, and onto his clothes. But what this image is saying, this comes from the consecration of the high priest. If you read back in Exodus 30, when Aaron was being consecrated for the first time, God said, take, uh, take spices, take this cinnamon spice, and take uh, myrrh, take a beautiful smelling myrrh, and you're going to make a perfume, and you're going to go into my sanctuary and bring Aaron and all the other priests there and liberally spread this oil over them. And when you've spread it over them, spread it over the rest of the sanctuary, over the basins and over the utensils and over the cloth and over the altar, spread it over everything in the sanctuary. And what the image is saying is that whatever that oil touches is set apart for God's holy use, that whatever the oil touches uh, is going to live and going to dwell in the presence of God. So the way this psalm begins, it says, how good it is when God's people live together in unity, it is like you are perpetually living in the sanctuary. When you're in true, authentic community, it is true, authentic Christian community like you are perpetually living in God's presence. Verse 3 goes on and gives us a second image. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, what does that mean, the dew of Hermon? Well, if you know some geography of Israel, Hermon is in the far north of Israel, and Mount Zion that's in Jerusalem is down south. And Hermon is a, uh, Mount Hermon is a lush and verdant area. In fact, I was uh, in Israel in 2016. I was leading a tour with about 35 college students, and we traveled up one day to near about this region, and while we were there, a rainstorm broke out on us. And so you saw students scrambling for ponchos and rain jackets and just anything to cover up uh, because when we left that morning, it was completely sunny, but we, we went up and we traveled there and just a rainstorm broke out uh, as it naturally would up in this area. 
You can imagine a place like that as you go further north, it gets cooler, the winds of the sea rise, water falls. Imagine the dew, what it might be like on the mountainside each morning, these glassy beads of refreshment over the mountain lawns. And then as you go south towards Mount Zion, it becomes more arid. Now, um, we're in Austin, and we've had however many straight 100-degree days, and we are in desperate need of water. And could you imagine waking up one morning and there having been over the night a cool and refreshing morning dew that just soaked the ground, that all of the, the ruts and the cracks in the dirt were nourished and all of the gardens sprung back to life and the grass that had been turned dry and yellow was green and fresh again. Can you imagine a moment like that? And that's what the image is saying right here. When God's people live together in unity, it is like a, a refreshing rain that deeply soaks the ground. There's a coolness to it, a refreshment, soothing to the harshness of life. See how the psalm ends now in verse 3. It says, For there, in the place of unity, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. See, the message of Psalm 133 is the blessing of God is that his people would live together in unity. True community. It's the picture actually of eternal life. There is the blessing forevermore, life forevermore. You remember the great divorce. I was saying a minute ago of just miles and miles of isolation. This is the reverse picture. Everyone is gathered together around the Lord in unity, worshiping together, a community that cares for one another and orients itself towards the Lord. This itself is the blessing of God. You know, one of our core values here at Christ Church is community. And if you're new here, we have a saying, uh, no one stands alone, which is basically how we describe community, that no one stands alone. We all stand in the company of God's people together. And it means that no matter where you're coming from, no matter how much life might be falling apart or feeling uncertain, you are invited to stand in this community. And as one of your priests, I have the unique vantage point of watching how this community cares for one another. It's one of my favorite things uh, to witness and to watch and to just pay attention how you, the body of Christ, live in unity and care for one another. Think of ways of how you care for one another when you're sick or showing up for the big moments in life and graduations and marriages and births and adoptions and funerals. Think of how I've watched you drive each other to and from surgery. I can think of adoptive grandfathers playing with adoptive grandchildren here in the church. And this vision of community life gets lived out with a special um, emphasis in our small group ministry. You know, our small groups are on break this summer, and a number of you who have come into the church have asked, when do small groups return? I want to get into the life of the, the small group. I want to get into community life. And so they'll be coming back um, in a few weeks. But this is where the blessing of God is. And brothers and sisters, the people of God, live together in true unity. Authentic Christian community is the antidote to loneliness in our culture. And I would add this. Authentic Christian community is actually one of the most missionally attractive things the church can do. It doesn't try to be missionally active or attractive. It doesn't try to be evangelistic. But the, by very nature of being a community that cares for one another, an authentic Christian community living together in unity, you cannot help but being put on display to a world that is looking for connection and for care. 
Rodney Stark wrote a book uh, called The Rise of Christianity. Get this subtitle, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. And um, Stark, he's a sociologist at Baylor. He's nearing retirement. He wrote this book actually not as a confessing Christian. And here's what he's looking at. He's saying, how is it possible that about 500 people around the year of 30 AD uh, lived such lives that in 300 years they became the dominant religious movement in the Roman world? How did that happen? Turning the whole Roman world upside down. How did that possibly happen? So he, he looks and he, he points to his proposal is this that the attractiveness of the authentic Christian community led person after person to begin following Jesus. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And he points to examples like this, that as the church would become planted and grow up in a city, it would become wildly attractive to whoever encountered it, one person at a time. So Stark points out how in the early Christian communities there is different treatment between uh, women than how the rest of the Roman society treated women. And he gives an example of something like a dinner party. In a Roman dinner party, women would be expected to leave and to exit the dinner party around halfway through the meal. Because as the meal was continued to be served and as men were drinking the wine, uh, they would become aggressive and rambunctious, uh, eventually degrading the women and treating them in harmful ways. So it was common practice that halfway through a meal, all the women would exit. But in the Christian communities, women were invited to stay for the duration of the entire meal. And not only was this form of uh, masculine virility frowned upon, what was seen as a virtue in the Roman culture was actually seen as sin in Christian culture. Christian culture upheld humility, restraint, and mercy, something totally foreign and different than the Roman culture. So as people would begin to see in this authentic Christian community treatment between men and women, or they would be, begin to pay attention to how um, others were cared for, how those in their midst who were suffering from poverty were cared for, how those who were sick or the widows were cared for. There's a community that lived differently that itself became attractive. And so when relatives and family members and neighbors went to investigate what was going on, this difference in life, this stability, the social acceptance, the sense of belonging it was like they were seeing from black and white to color for the first time. Russian theologian George Florovsky wrote this. He said, from the very beginning, Christianity was not primarily a doctrine, but exactly a community. There was not only a message to be proclaimed and delivered and good news to be declared, there was precisely a new community, distinct and peculiar, in the process of growth and formation to which members were called and recruited. Indeed, fellowship, koinonia, was the basic category of Christian existence. And if that's the blessing of community, then we might ask the question, then why is it so hard to actually live this out? If that's all the good, we've got so much going for us, if this is what God's calling us to, why is it actually so hard to live this out? Look again at verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. If it's good and pleasant when God's people live together in unity, if it's a possible goodness for it to live together in unity, then it also must mean the other is true. How unhappy it must be when the people of God are in discord towards one another. How frustrating that must be. These past two years through the pandemic, thinking about um, all the different uh, things that have come up in the past couple of years, 
between, and you could take any number of these, pandemic, national politics, conversation around race, leadership decisions and policies around masking and vaccinations, many other decisions, have strained Christian unity in every church in North America. There's not one Christian that I've spoken to that has not experienced this, not one Christian leader that I've encountered that has not said, this has been supremely difficult these past couple of years for Christian unity here in the body of Christ. Every single church in North America affected. And yet, I don't think we're experiencing anything new in history. I mean, there's some new challenges right now, but the church is always facing upheaval. There's always the challenge of unity in the body of Christ. There always is. This is not new. One of the earliest letters we have not in the Bible is from a man named Clement, and this was actually considered for a while uh, in consideration for belonging to Scripture. Clement, in around 90 AD, is a bishop of Rome, and he's writing to the people in Corinth, those Corinthians who always seem to have some trouble. Paul writes them a couple of times because they can't seem to just get along. And so Clement is writing to them, telling them, guys, you still can't get along. You know, it's, it's after Paul. I'm 30 years later, and I'd still like you to get along. And he's saying, what's happened now is some of the young ones of you have gotten upset at some of the older, mature Christians, and so you've broken off and you've, you've had a church split. You're our first church split here in the, the church of Corinth. And um, frankly, I'm a little annoyed and upset about the whole thing because if you remember, Jesus died on the cross, so could you please get back together? He uses a little bit different language than that, but that's kind of the gist of what he's going for is, guys, what are we doing here if Jesus died for you and you can't yet live in unity? He kind of calls them out on this always a challenge to Christian unity in the local church. There is no idyllic perfect church. Such a thing does not exist, which is why Eugene Peterson wrote these words. He says, getting saved is easy, but becoming a community is difficult. There are exceptions, occasionally quite glorious exceptions, but Christian communities, every single one of them are communities in progress, baptized sinners in various stages of development in the life of love. Church, and you know this, is filled with flawed people. Flawed clergy, flawed laity, baptized sinners in various stages of development. Now, there are just some practical concerns on Christian unity that are, we should at least state. Um, first of all, geographic. Austin is a really difficult city to drive around in. I think everyone would admit that. That the, the road, the infrastructure, and we've, I'm sure there's newspaper articles. In fact, I saw one yesterday in the Statesman about what we can do to improve the, the roads. But when it comes to like just the geography of Austin and Christian community, if I'm traveling, I live south, and if I'm traveling north of the river, um, I definitely have Google Maps out because it is like a totally different city up there. Places I've never seen before, things I haven't heard of. There's geographic difficulties when it comes to being community of actually just gathering. There's life stage difficulties. Some of you are young adults and you're new to the city and um, you're maybe moving here for a first job or a second job or a career. And it typically takes two to three years of consistent investment before you land in a community. It takes two to three years of consistent investment before you can land and feel at home in a place. Some of you are families with young kids and just the difficulty of showing up and Finding sitters takes planning, takes sacrifice. Some of you have ongoing illnesses, and that makes embodied community especially challenging. But over the years, the most significant challenge I have observed is actually the self. The self is what makes Christian community challenging. The stuff I bring into Christian community, the anxieties that I bring into Christian community, the sense of what I need from this community to make me feel better. 
See, every group we belong to in society, what we typically do, we use the group to feel safe, secure, to feel belonging. We have a unity as long as we agree on the same political position, have the same background or viewpoints, educational experience, beliefs about some certain social position. Think about it like this. Have you ever walked into a group, like a new group of people, maybe some colleagues, some work colleagues, maybe uh, you're remembering back to a, a school moment, you walk into a new group of people and you're sitting down, and as the conversation is going on around you, there's also an interior conversation going on in your mind. And you're asking, do they like me right now? Did I, the thing I just said, was it smart or funny or clever? Did it make me look foolish or more esteemed in their eyes? What they're saying right now, I don't totally agree with, but if I go along, do I continue to stay in this community? And the reality is, what you're doing, rather than entering the group, you have become more concerned with yourself, your anxieties, your fears, your sense of social acceptance and posturing. You aren't really becoming a friend to them. You're using that group to meet your own needs. The fear of loneliness is driving you at that moment to cover up your true self, be able to actually be with the people in front of you. Because of sin, because of our isolation from God and others, our deepest fear, one of our deepest fears is exclusion from others, to be cast out. It's one of the reasons why speaking up against the majority opinion is always so difficult. So there's a part of you when you enter groups that uses others to make you feel better about yourself. Paul calls this our old self, old flesh, our old man. You might know the term false self. It's when we enter a community and attempt to um, put a false image of ourself out there so that we'll be accepted, using the group to make us feel better, how smart we are, how beautiful we are, whatever it might be. Christians even fall victim to this, trying to use their record of service. If I serve well enough, if I serve enough people, if I always say yes to requests, then I'm valuable and acceptable to the church community. But don't you see what happens? You're using the community to cover again your fears and insecurities, not actually belonging to the community, never entering true and authentic Christian community. So if that's the challenge, the challenge of the self, how do we enter true Christian community? How do we have a unity that runs so deep that we actually have the freedom to disagree with others, and that doesn't cost our fellowship. And we have a unity that runs so deep that someone can wrong me, and I have the grace and the freedom to forgive them and not hold it against them forever, refusing to ever be in a Bible study with them. How do we get a freedom like that that actually becomes this true and authentic community where no one does stand alone, where there's a sense of everyone is for one another? And I think this is where Psalm 134, the next psalm, gives us the answer, and I'm just going to read through it Real quickly, Psalm 134. It says, Praise the Lord, all you, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. So here's the story of that psalm. It's written to the people who long after the worship have ended, they're still in the temple. They're still praising God at night. The, the ones who stay behind and worship God when no one else is there. Those who remain the evening in the temple, these night uh, worshipers of the Lord, they're seeking God in private long after the party. During the watches of the night, they're praising God. And what the psalm is saying is there's an invitation to us, the readers, that we would seek God in private. 
We'd seek God without others around. We'd seek him first and foremost, that he is our highest desire in all of life. And when no one is watching us, we desire just to remain with God in his presence, to remain at the temple, lifting up our hands, blessing him and being blessed by him. And this is the key to authentic Christian community. As you love God as your highest love, become able to sit in his presence, become aware of his absolute love and acceptance for you, his love that washes over you through the Spirit, you become so attached to him that you actually have a freedom towards other people. You can be free to disagree with others because your identity is not at stake. You can be free to um, have difficult conversations with other Christians because ultimately your security rests in a hope in Christ, not in their opinion about you. Only if you're so attached to Christ and secure in him, the one who is above then you're actually free to disagree about something. You don't lose peace or friendship or unity. Christ is the centering reality, not your position on some social position. There is a, um, there's a monastery in Kentucky that I used to visit when I was there. I take our, our campus staff there once a year. It's where Thomas Merton was actually, if you, uh, if you know that name, a famous uh, monk from the 20th century. And as you'd go into the monastery, um, there's a little area, and we have a picture of it right here, a uh, little area right as you're walking to the chapel. And it's, this is the area only the monks are allowed to go to. The rest, of, the rest of us common folk couldn't walk into this. We could go and go to the chapel. We could do so many other things. But there's a private area. And as they would walk in, they walk under this sign, God alone. This group of monks who live in community every day, walking in under God alone, orienting their lives under God alone. And I just thought, this is what Psalm 134 is truly getting at. That if you want authentic community... If you want to be part of a, a no-one-stands-alone community, if you want that, then what you must uphold at all costs is God alone. It's just sense that, Lord Jesus, my life is safe and hid with you. I'm willing to worship at night in the temple when no one else is around. If only I would have you. So this week, let me invite you. I want to give you a, an invitation to try something. You know, that you probably have a normal practice maybe of, of reading the Bible and of prayer, but I want to invite you to uh, try to sit in solitude and silence maybe for 10 minutes this week. And for some of you, that'll be a challenge. 10 minutes because of, uh, maybe because of the busyness of your life or because of um, life stage, you've got young kids and trying to find 10 minutes is like, you know, I've got to have a TV show on in the next room and it is going to be pretty loud and noisy. But for 10 minutes, I wonder, maybe in a car ride or maybe over a lunch break, scheduling a time, could you sit? And take a piece of scripture and read it and hold it before the Lord and say, Lord, I won't move from this presence until I become so convinced of your love for me. I won't move from right now until I am aware you love me in this moment right now. I worship you, God alone. If you can take that, if you can take that 10 minutes and that 10 minutes begins to stretch into longer periods of time, becoming actually a whole lifestyle. That's what I'm getting at. That's what Psalm 134 is getting at, that the way to true and authentic Jesus community is not to go for what the community can offer you, but first go to the Lord, offering yourself to the Lord and saying, have all of me. I only want you. Let me then be a blessing to others, a gift to others. It's the only true way to authentic community, and it's what our culture needs and desires so badly at this point. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.